Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discuss the fallout from the show The Last Dance with former Chicago Bull, alert people to legal services during these troubled times, and learn how the pork industry has become dangerously concentrated. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review from May 22, 2020. Ben Jarofsky chatted with Craig Hodges, a former guard with the Chicago Bulls during their glory days. Pointedly left out of a high-profile documentary overseen by Michael Jordan, Hodges discusses snitching, Jordan's genius, and the reality not seen on TV. The Ben Jarofsky Show airs every Friday at noon. Been waiting for this one for a long time, ladies and gentlemen. Every week, I have a discussion about The Last Dance. I'm an obsessive Bull fan, and I've been pr- promising listeners that I get Craig Hodges on the show. And so here he is, the great Craig Hodges. I oh, appreciate you, man. Uh, I met you right after you wrote your book. I came to, uh, mm-hmm. I think it was your aunt's house uh, in the south suburbs. And right. uh, we were talking about your life, uh, the two lanes of your life. I'll never forget it. The two lanes, uh, the basketball <laughs> lane and the black lane. I don't know if you remember this conversation. Right, right, uh, right. And, and no we've had, let's talk about both of those lanes. So tell folks a little bit about when you joined the Bulls, just put that in the perspective of your career. I, my, my memory is that it was 1988 or 89. Is that correct, Craig? Right, exactly. And, and uh, the Bulls, at, I was with Phoenix at the time, and Jerry Colangelo, who grew up in my hometown, Chicago Heights, he was the president general manager, and he brought me in and told me that the Bulls wanted to bring me in, and he wanted me to go and have a nice, you know, have a good time. So he gave me a chance to come home and play, and, when I got here, it was one of those things where, you know, the media was talking about how Michael needed help. And I had played had good runs against the Bulls in the playoffs when I was with Milwaukee. So I had some type of, you know, uh, understanding and familiarity with the organization. But to get here and then to see, you know, Michael and his entourage and, and his handlers and that kind of thing, but also having come in with six years of previous uh, experience in the league. So I wasn't a rookie. I wasn't a a newcomer to, I was a veteran in the league, so I wasn't really enamored with, you know, the the trappings of uh, what professional sports could bring at that point in my career. You know, maybe if I would have been coming here in my second or third year, it might have been different. But coming in as a veteran, I wasn't really, I wasn't really shaken by any of the things that were going on. So I was ready to come in and do what we did, and that's winning championships. So that first year was the year that the Bulls actually made the run, uh, and that's when Jordan hit the shot in Cleveland, right? 1989? Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and, and that was big fun, man. Big fun. Uh, and a lot of people don't know that the, you know, leading up to that play, if you go back and you look at the uh, video, Fred Elo is taking the ball out of bounds, and I'm jumping up and down trying to stop his uh, pass on line. And he catches me right while I'm in midair, and I'm about to come down. He throws the ball and takes off past me. And by the time I hit the ground, he's already gone, and he lays the ball up to put them up. And I'm over there kicking myself in the back and all of this, and MJ is like, he's patting me on the leg. Hodge, I got this. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, man, don't worry about it. I got this. So when he told me he was going to hit the shot before he hit the shot. So that's that. You know, that's kudos to the brother. All right, now let's talk about that play since you you mentioned it's one of my favorite plays, and I'm going to go on my mm-hmm. soapbox here and feel free to mm-hmm. d- vehemently, vehemently disagree with me if you want, Craig Hodges, because I know you will. When we get to the political okay. aspect of this, I'm sure you will, uh, of the conversation. Okay. 
in my humble opinion, mm-hmm. the man who has never received the praise he deserves for the play that followed, the one that you just described, for the play in which Michael Jeffrey Jordan hit the shot to win the game and win the, that series, was Brad mm-hmm. Sellers on the inbound pass. That was a great inbound pass, and people never and, did and, Go and, and to have the presence of mind. The presence of mind. It's almost like you look at a quarterback who stays back in the pocket, looks out to his primary receiver, and then has to add live from that point. That is basically basically what Brad was able to do there. And, you know, man, you have to give him, you know, props on being able to, you know, keep his composure and get the ball to the man who needed it at that period of time, man. Absolutely. You're right, because uh, there's five – for uh, people who don't know, there's five seconds. Uh, he had five seconds. It's not like he's got all day to inbound the ball. And that... Exactly. And then you, then you had not only the five seconds of pressure, but the pressure of the moment. And it only being a moment left, <laughs> you know. Right. So there's a lot of things that you know those who are you know, fans and you know, and I think one of the things with the Soul Last Dance is giving some people some understanding of the pressures that goes that go into being a professional athlete on a lot of different levels, not just from somebody who, who people consider a bully. So when I look at some of the stuff, I laugh at it because it's so you know it, it's commercial, you know, and it's entertainment. So a lot of stuff that even though they're there for every moment of that year, okay, it, it, it's still entertaining, man. And yeah. it's one man's perspective. All right. Well, we'll get to all that. But the, the other thing mm-hmm. I always thought about that play in Cleveland, which mm-hmm. is such a turning point for in, in the history of the Chicago Bulls, is Absolutely. That my understanding, you were, if uh, he could not get the ball to Jordan, he was supposed to pass the ball to you. Do I have that correct? Right. Exactly. So Michael was coming to the top towards the uh, sideline. And I was going to the baseline, to the three-point line. So if you look at when the ball came in bound, I was flared to the corner. So, you know, and at that time, you know, I was one of the two or three, top two or three scorers on the team. So I was effective that night. I think I might have 15 or 16 points. So it was one of those things where you always have your secondary. But, you know, in that situation, Brad was able to keep his mind and had his target and, and saw where MJ was breaking to be able to get in the ball at, at perfect time and then, MJ being the way he is, he's going to create a way to make that bucket because one thing you can always say, man, he refused to lose, brother. Mm-hmm. He refused to lose. All right, let's talk about that. Uh, you, you mentioned mm-hmm. the bully thing, uh, and one mm-hmm. of the themes in the last show was that Michael Jordan was a bully uh, to his <clears throat> teammates. Did you see it that way? Well, I just look at it like this. Whenever you're in that, um, you got that pecking order. So it's like you're in the family. Big brother going to pick on little brother. And so it's one of those things, big money, pick on little money. <laughs> in that situation, that's basically what it is. So you have situations where guys who maybe not have the, uh, you know, the, the fortitude to say something back or they may think that MJ may get them cut, you know, or, or may get their playing time next. You know, so it, it's a thing that happens in sport. And I, MJ ain't the only one that, that carried his weight, carried his, uh, you know, you have avowed guys who are in the league who are straight up jerks, and they'll tell you they're jerks because they have wealth and privilege. But, you know, to actually have witnessed some of it, I looked at it as being very childish for me, you know, when I would see him go at guys, you know, and, and sometimes when he would go at them, I'm going to say something about it. And there was a time when he went at Scott Williams and the way he went at him, I didn't like it. 
And I told him that ain't cool. So there's things that have gone down that ain't on that film. And part of the reason I know that I'm not in it is to speak to what I saw to it. And so it's not a, you know, intimidation factor. You know, it plays a role in it. And that intimidation can be formally known as bullying. But I just look at it as being just a childish cat that's got a lot of bread that can do what he wants to and not be held accountable in a lot of degrees. Well, I recall, uh, and I, th- I put this in the story I wrote about you, and I don't know where I picked this up. Maybe you told it to me or I read it. Uh, but there was a moment where uh, Michael Jordan was talking about garbage time. He's sick of being at the game with garbage time with garbage players, and I'm doing this off of memory, <laughs> Craig. And you said to right, him, right. I've been in this league longer than you have. I am not garbage. And, he, and, and now, yeah, oh, Hodge, I ain't talking about you. That's in Sam Smith's book. Sam, Sam, no. Yeah, man, see, and that's the thing that if you don't stand for something, you fall for anything. And I ain't going to fall for that garbage that you calling your, you call, whatever you want to call somebody else. I'm not in that group. I'm not, whatever you want to say, brother, if they're not going to stand up for themselves, I'm going to stand up for me. And from my, you know, from my guesstimation, everybody in there is professional. And you ain't told, everyone has an off day at the workplace, whether you're a doctor, lawyer, whatever. Everybody has an off day. So we can ride people or we can come to a common, understanding that that brother got off day and I got to carry the load and we all can carry his load today because everybody's going to have to carry somebody's load on a given day in the team sport. And the thing that's really kind of upsetting to me is that how you can make this whole thing about one guy winning six championships, man. Come on, man. Come on. You didn't, you ain't played D. You didn't come on, dude. It ain't, you ain't do all of that by yourself. Come on. But the America, that's the American. That's how we want that. We want that. We want. Wow. We want. We want to be like Mike. <laughs> Simple. I I just read a a story uh, by the uh, the radical sports writer. I'm blanking as Dave Zarin is his name. He wrote it in the Nation. He was talking about. Now I think. Yeah, he's Dave a, is my Dave wrote the forward to my book. Yes. Yes, he did. That's wow. I should have remembered that. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, he wrote a story, and it, he was saying that. How did he put it? That uh, you don't have to be a bully to win. Uh, now, my guess is he's just a disgruntled Knicks fan, but I'll put that aside. <laughs> uh, and I'm thinking about it, Craig. I'm trying to think: were there any great champions who uh, were nice to their teammates? You know what I'm saying? You know, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I get it. I get. It. I think you know. I look at those Celtics teams that won everything. So you have five or six guys that's got seven or eight rings or whatever. That craziness is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, people would tell me, well, you know, the competition wasn't – okay, whatever, you're in the time that you're in. So in the time that they were in, they were fighting segregation. They were fighting all, other, all type of things. So when they came together as a collective, based on what I've been able to see, I've been able to talk to Bill Russell. I've had a chance to talk to the late uh, – uh, uh, Havlicek, and, and you know, so I've had a chance, and not one time did I see any niche in the armor where any of them thought any of them was better than any of them. Even though they know they knew Bill Russell was the anchor, they didn't look at uh, they didn't look at uh, who we gonna say. Let's say Sam Jones is any less than Bill Russell. You know what I'm saying? So within the context of it, you know, you I look at systems. Systems win championships. So I go to a Bill Walsh system, you know, I go to, you know, Belichick system, go to a Phil Jackson system, go to those systems that win championships and the overriding principle is the system more so than 
any personality. So when we draw the personality, Michael was blessed to play in Triangle. Triangle could have been great for Clyde Drexler. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's just a matter of, you know, you're being blessed to play in a certain era given under certain principles and conditions. So when I look at the mentality and, you know, you want to go out and now this whole imagery of bullying I don't see that. I don't see a Larry Bird being a bully. I don't see a Magic Johnson being a bully. I don't see a Magic Johnson saying, "Damn man, if I'm gonna throw you the ball, catch this." You know what I'm saying? I can see that, but I don't see it being that it's a steady drum beat. That you know, when I look at the way they're portraying um, Scotty Burrell, you know what I'm saying, and all of that kind of madness. I'm like, okay, you could put. Why are you putting it in there to make the brother look weak? You know, is there something in that that you need to make happen like that? And that's at this point in your life, why do you need? more of anything. Chuck Mertz spoke with Alex Blanchett on how the American pork industry has been dominated by an industrial complex and the effect that is having on the food supply during this pandemic. Blanchett discusses how the food supply system evolved to feed more people than ever, but also became vulnerable to black swan events. This is Hell airs every Sunday and Thursday at 10 a.m. The pork industry has figured out a way to make money to commodify everything about the pig in an effort to not have any waste. But what happens when that suddenly creates a huge supply of all parts porcine? And what happens to the community, communities where these facilities are located when this kind of totalized industry comes to town? Here to explain to us award-winning anthropologist Alex Blanchett is author of Porkopolis, American Animality, Standardized Life, and the Factory Farm. Welcome to This Is Hell, Alex. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, Alex, just so I want to make sure people understand the ubiquitous nature of the por- of the pig in our daily lives, let's say I'm a complete vegan who does not want to have any contact with any meat at all, let alone pork. How difficult would it be to take pork out of my life to make my life kosher, if you will? Um, that would be pretty challenging. Um, you know, the 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 pig has been made to surround us in radical ways. Um, whether you order something from a truck that uses diesel, that's that has um, biodiesel blended into it, um, whether you drive down a roadway that perhaps has some forms of bone within it, um, or even whether you use the internet um, after companies like Google capture uh, carbon offsets by funding biogas extraction from pig manure lagoons, the pig is being made and remade and saturated through our everyday lives to the point where, you know, I say in the book, um, in some ways, um, our everyday lives uh, have been turned into um, tiny minor subsidies 
for these operations. So these operations then, are they more about feeding humanity or are they more about using the pork, using the hog for other purposes? Um, I think we can't separate those two things. And I think that's been um, the model all the way going back to um, um, late 19th century Chicago, if not Cincinnati before that. Um, there's met, you know, there's many reasons that we have incredibly cheap meat, um, way overproduced meat that range from um, massive economies of scale to deregulation to various forms of industry support and agricultural colleges. But a significant factor, I think, in these models as they operate is to try to continually cheapen the price of meat by finding value in all of the other things in pigs to the point where, you know, there was a time when meat was something of a luxury or something that wasn't very common. Whereas today, I think um, for a lot of people, um, it's kind of hard to avoid eating meat. There's just so much of it. It's so radically cheap. And a significant factor of that is all of the 400 some odd um, non-meat commodities that come from pigs today. We were speaking with uh, some automobile experts on our show back in the early 2000s, and they were saying if gas could get up to $10 a gallon, maybe we could have an impact on uh, lessening their impact, lessening the automobile's impact on climate change. Do we, can we just do the same thing with meat? If meat just suddenly became incredibly expensive, would that address many of the problems that these kinds of facilities cause when it comes to uh, pollution, when it comes to the types of jobs that people get, when it comes to migrant labor? Yeah, um, I, th I think I think the, the, the cheap cost of meat is a significant factor in this and the constant ongoing cheapening of the cost of meat. Um, um, I, I, I do not think it's a negative social goal um, collective goal to think about how we can um, try to um, increase the price of meat. I don't think increasing the price of meat is is a negative outcome by any means. Your book, as you write, is about the politics of industrialism in an ostensibly post-industrial United States articulated through the changing forms of being human that underlie porcine life and death. With so many meat production workers testing positive for COVID-19 now, shouldn't the meat industry be more post-industrial, that is, more automated to less the potential, lessen the potential for human contagion? Yeah, I mean, that's the argument we're seeing emerge right now um, that, um, you know, voiced from a lot of agricultural economists and so forth, that in the face of this pandemic, the human body has suddenly emerged as a major problem of production um, and that what needs to happen is increased automation um, and increased kind of investment um, rather than relying on, um, you know, highly exploited um um, racially cheapened labor. Um, but there's a bunch of questions there, right? There's questions as to, you know, it's, it kind of sounds like just um, a flick of the wrist, let's just automate. Well, it's not so easy as that. Um, you know, when I worked in and interviewed um, senior managers at slaughterhouses, many of them were adamant that they could never, they would never be able to find a machine that can cleanly take apart animal muscles, given their various, their, their variations and so forth. Um, and in a broader sense, um, this sort of attention to, to workers as a problem of production at this moment in COVID kind of ignores the ways that the human body, that the system's been operating beyond the limits of the human body for a really long time. 
and before it um, allegedly or not impacted the meat supply, um, no one seemed to um, critically question it. Um, no one seemed to question the fact, as Oxfam and some ethnographers and other journalists um, revealed a few years back, that in southern poultry plants, um, workers were wearing diapers on the production line because it was operating at such a speed and for some reason it just couldn't accommodate um, bathroom breaks, right? That the human bladder had become a problem of production. Or if we think of just the rates of injury in, in plants that are operating at such a fast pace that workers are making, you know, upwards of 10,000 repetitive motions or knife, slice, knife slices in an eight or nine or 10 hour shift, um, causing all sorts of injuries um, over time, um, the human body in some senses has long been a problem in the system and it's been largely ignored until um, the, the so-called meat supply was threatened. And you mentioned all these kind of journalistic exposés that come out about a certain facility or a singular plant and how they have these kinds of issues, like you were just explaining with the chicken plant and the workers wearing diapers. But you say that these are, this might be even a mistake by these exposés to see them as unique situations, that this is the normal situation when it comes to food processing. What do we miss when we think that this is unique in only singular facilities and not the way that meat packing is, meat processing is being done everywhere? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's a few things here. Yeah, this, this book um, is not an expose, and it actually kind of resists some of the logics of the expose, um, granted, there's there's a wide variety of of writing on 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 the meat industry, um, but by and large, um, a lot of the more popular books um, tend to you know come into a community and show a portrait of moral deviance, right? Of trying to say this is so far outside of the norm, of the moral norm, and this is so exceptional and sort of showing images or, or, or describing images of, of stench-ridden environs, um, of, of uncontained and uncontrolled manure, of workers' repetitive stress injuries, and then moving on, right? And then moving on to give a kind of comparative um, example of a bucolic farm elsewhere and sort of saying, this is who we are. Um, and these the, the places over there are a deviation. Um, you know, I... My book starts from different premises from that. Um, a few weeks ago, I was listening with your, to your interview with um, Josh Speck, the author of Red Meat Republic, and you asked an interesting question. Um, you know, why does so much history, especially American history, kind of chart a pivotal moment um, of industrialization and capitalism with the rise of Henry Ford's assembly line, when actually Henry Ford purportedly took the the assembly line idea from Chicago's disassembly line, right? What would happen if we instead started thinking about um, the history of industrial capitalism um, moving on from there? And, you know, one of the points my book tries to make is that there's, um, there's nothing new, certainly, about these industrial operations. And in some senses, what they are and what, what, what creates um, the... the some of the major challenges of industrial meat production is that it's like 160 years of refined industrial engineering bearing down on pigs, um, landscapes, and people. Um, so, you know, I make some, with that in mind, right, with this sense that, you know, 
yes, these companies are continuously um, kind of trying to reindustrialize an overindustrialize animal, trying to find new ways to work an overworked animal. I also try to think about the ways that um, um, they also inherit a deeper system that they're trying to work through. Um, not trying to develop a kind of moral critique, which I think we see a bit too often, that um, the people you know, like low level or mid level, or even some high level managers of these operations are kind of morally deviant, or even in some exposes that that workers don't have an allegedly don't have a morally adequate sense or connection to the pig. And instead of trying to develop an expose like in that sense, like if only we show how bad it is, it'll suddenly change. Or if only we show um, um, how poorly um, people have the moral problematics of, of, of people's orientations to animal life and environments, then perhaps we can fix it. And I don't want to write an expose like that. I wanted to write, um, first of all, I probably studied, I guess what you could say is one of the better companies, certainly not one of the, not a very, very large company, a company that, you know, monitors the, the birth, conception, birthing, raising and killing of some 7 million pigs a year. Um, but one that would be considered within the industry to be like the most quote unquote quality of industrial pork production um, that were themselves trying to work within these very low profit margin pressures that they had a hand in creating, but they, they, they've also inherited um, to try to create a bit more value in these animals and also try to make these situations a bit more livable to have perhaps less punishing or disposable labor, have different ethical relationships to animals. Um, but also I wanted to, not unlike perhaps, I won't compare myself to Upton Sinclair, but um, not unlike Upton Sinclair, who you know went to the Chicago meatpacking yards not to show how um, the armors of the world were um, absolutely morally deviant from America or at large, but instead used the meatpackers to shine a different kind of light on industrial capitalism as it's functioning normally. <laughs> Hey there, my producer, are you sick? No, it's allergies. Ah, jeez, you sound like the Trekkers after a three-day marching powder binge. Ugh, I know, it's awful. I know a guy... Have you noticed how many episodes start with, I know's a guy, or this dude over here? Uh, no, what's your point? You've never noticed anything weird? Uh, no. Like, I don't have a recorder, and yet these episodes keep appearing. And we seem to keep moving from, ugh, jeez, scenario to scenario. I, I, I mean, do you ever wonder if we're, like, inside a simulation or something? Huh, well, everything seems all right. I mean, uh, we beat the digital land in that simulation back in that size matter 71, and, and that was like 17 episodes ago if I can do Matt right. I mean, that's what I mean. We keep talking in episodes and making references no one cares about. Listen, Jess, I got what's going to cure your allergies, I swear. Now you got to come see this guy. I'm just, this is just going to be a mess of sound effects and then a jump cut. (laughs) Do you see what I mean? I mean, how did we even get here? We walked the entire way from the co-pro. 
Uh, you got a burrito at Martinez, and I didn't even get a bite, so I don't oh, even... Oh, yeah, I still have that half in my pocket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hand-warming burrito. Anyway, this is Pooper's place. Uh, Everyone in Undertown swears by him. His name is what? I don't know, like Steve or something, but uh, we all could call him Poopers. I'll, you'll Suddenly see why. I'm not super sure about this, Kyle. Oh, whoa, 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 what is that smell? That is the medicines. Hey, Poops, what's going oh, on? God, it smells like Sasquatch's socks died in That's here. the natural medicines. My producer here's got some allergies. Maybe you could, uh... The allergies of Bridgeport. Yes, the dab and the trees and the bowl. Ugh, seriously, what is that smell? It is a secret substance blended right here of all natural excretions. Yes, I'm telling you, I had cancer and poopers, he cleared it right up. I cannot believe that. Let me just smear a little of this here and here under your nostrils. Just breathe deep. Oh, it smells awful. That's the medication. Oh, I think I'm going to puke. Oh, my God. Oh. Oh. Hey. Wait a minute. I stopped sneezing. You just put a little of this on your lip every morning for a few minutes and no more allergies. What's in it? It's a proprietary blend. I can't believe more people don't use these natural methods. I hate that this is working. I just wish we could spread the message to more people. Well, maybe we can. Do you think this is really a good idea? Well, Pooper says this is the way he gets the immunity herbs. Uh, by smearing whatever this gross gunk is under people's doors? It's genius. Everyone touches it, they get the immunity. I, I'm just not sure. You're so pedestrian. We're going to be hailed as heroes. I, I'm just not sure. Listen, you take a couple bags of this, and I'll take a couple bags of this, and we'll start hitting these door handles. What is this really dog sh- Not entirely. Oh my god, I'm gonna be sick. No, you're not. Your allergies are solved. This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump says he is taking a drug known to have serious side effects. Unemployment continues to boom. Trump fires his fifth inspector general in as many weeks. Trump and his sons smear Biden. Trump threatens two states and calls the number of virus cases in the U.S. a badge of honor. No, really. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1212, May 15th. Nearly 3 million more people filed for unemployment benefits last week, bringing the total of 36.5 million in just eight weeks. The unemployment is around 20%, but higher in many metro areas. It is the highest since the Great Depression. However, Trump signaled he would veto a major $3 trillion pandemic relief bill Democrats passed in the House after approving a rule change to allow lawmakers to vote remotely. Republicans want to tie a wish list of tax cuts and liability protections for businesses to the plan. The Fed warned yesterday the lack of cash in the system could permanently close businesses in the USA and foment a depression. Trump fired the State Department Inspector General, who had opened an investigation into Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Pompeo refused to sit for an interview with Steve Linick after it emerged that he made a staffer run personal errands for him. Linick was also investigating Pompeo's decision to expedite last year's $8 billion arms sale to Saudi Arabia by declaring it an emergency. A whistleblower testified the United States lacks a master plan to respond to the coronavirus and save lives. 
The Trump administration has no national testing strategy or plan for distributing a vaccine, according to Dr. Richard Bright. He said the inaction would cost American lives this fall and winter. While Republicans attempted to paint Bright as a disgruntled employee, minutes before his testimony started, the Office of Special Counsel said that Bright, in fact, had been retaliated against for actions that were correct. Senator Richard Burr stepped aside as the Intelligence Committee's chairman one day after FBI agents seized his phone. A significant escalation of an investigation into whether Congressman Soloff stock using insider information about the pandemic. Burr and two other Republican lawmakers made suspicious transactions in January after a classified briefing on the impact of COVID-19. A warrant for Burr had to be cleared at the highest level of the FBI and signals the feds of a case. There is chaos in three states after unrest around stay-at-home orders. In Wisconsin, a conservative majority on the state Supreme Court sided with Republican lawmakers to overturn a statewide stay-at-home order. That immediately caused a confusing patchwork of openings and contradictory messages. In Michigan, hundreds of protesters, many of them armed, turned out in a thunderstorm at the state capitol in Lansing and directed threats toward Governor Gretchen Whitmer. In Pennsylvania, some county lawmakers defied the governor's orders to keep non-essential businesses closed. Trump flew to Allentown and called for Pennsylvania to reopen. Trump called on Senator Lindsey Graham to force President Obama to testify in the Senate about the non-existent scandal he is attempting to gin up. Graham declined, saying, quote, be careful what you wish for. The U.S. Post Office is reviewing package delivery fees as a top Republican fundraiser and Trump campaign donor is set to take over as Postmaster General. Trump has dubbed the U.S. Postal Service a joke and it mistakenly believes it subsidizes Amazon, which he despises because its owner Jeff Bezos also owns the Washington Post. And Mitch McConnell was forced to publicly admit he was wrong when he claimed that President Obama had not left behind a plan to deal with a pandemic in the U.S. In fact, Obama had left behind a 67-page report and three agencies to handle any pandemic outbreaks. Day 1,213, May 16th. In a rambling interview, Trump claimed the coronavirus will, quote, go away at some point and asserted a vaccine would be ready by the end of the year, maybe before. The actual timeline for a vaccine rollout is ballparked between 12 and 18 months from now. Trump then claimed the coronavirus testing is frankly overrated. We have more cases than anybody in the world, but why? Because we do more testing. When you test, you have a case. When you test, you find something is wrong with people. If we didn't do any testing, we would have very few cases. Trump's words seem to indicate an utter lack of understanding of how virus testing works. He has previously expressed surprise when members of his staff have tested positive for the virus and suggested that if the USA didn't test at all, then the numbers, quote, wouldn't look so bad for him. Trump also said that regardless of testing or a vaccine, he was going to push to reopen the nation. I just want to make something clear. It's very important, vaccine or no vaccine, we're back. We're starting the process. Your tax dollars have given at least $1 million to the Trump Organization since Trump took office. The payments are almost all for room rentals at Trump's hotels and golf clubs. In a related story, the Secret Service signed a near $200,000 contract to rent golf carts and other vehicles this summer. Day 1,214, May 17th. As the American death toll hit 90,000 people from the virus, Trump and his family spent the weekend smearing presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden with a series of baseless accusations. Trump called Biden mentally disabled. Trump's son called Biden a pedophile. Trump also complained that whistleblowers like Rick Bright are, quote, causing great injustice and harm to the nation. Those attacks came in a weekend when a barrage of new reporting called into question the veracity of a woman who's accused Biden of sexual assault. 
Multiple outlets reported that Tara Reid's allegations could not be confirmed and did not seem credible. Eric Trump claimed the coronavirus will magically disappear after the November election. Claiming the virus is a democratic ploy meant to prevent Trump from holding rallies across the country, Eric said his father's greatest tool is being able to go into an arena and fill it with 50,000 people every single time. He added it is a cognizant strategy by Democrats to keep Joe Biden competitive. Quote, you watch, they'll milk it every single day between now and November 3rd. And guess what? After November 3rd, coronavirus will magically all of a sudden go away and disappear and everybody will be able to reopen. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos manipulated the intent of the CARES Act passed by Congress and directed millions of federal dollars intended for public schools and colleges to private and religious institutions instead. DeVos has directed at least $1 billion to microgrants, which were intended to be used to fund private and religious schools. She has forced school districts to share millions of dollars designed for low-income students to wealthy private schools instead, and move funding that was to go to state schools to marginal smaller schools. In a related story, the ACLU filed suit over DeVos's proposed Title IX changes. DeVos is attempting to water down campus sexual harassment and assault provisions, a long-sought goal of the hard right. Trump's nominee to lead the U.S. Global Media Agency is now under investigation by D.C.'s Attorney General. The office is investigating whether Michael Pack, quote, unlawfully and improperly used funds from a nonprofit he oversees to benefit himself. Pack is known as a conservative filmmaker with ties to Steve Bannon. The agency has been nominated to run oversees a three-quarter of a billion dollar budget, a large staff, and channels such as Voice of America and Radio Marti. Day 1215, May 18th. Congress is now investigating the late night firing of an inspector general by Trump. The ouster of Stephen Linick was greeted with bipartisan concern. Many said it appeared to be an act of illegal retaliation. Trump claimed he no longer had full confidence in Linick. Paul Pompeo said that he recommended Linick be fired because the independent watchdog was undermining the department. Pompeo claimed also he did not know that Linick was investigating him. This appears to be false. Trump claimed that he's taking hydroxychloroquine right now and that he started taking it a couple weeks ago, despite the fact that he continues to test negative for coronavirus. Trump said he started taking the drug because, quote, I get a lot of positive calls about it. He added he doesn't know if it works and said if it doesn't, you're not going to get sick and die. So far, I seem to be okay. In fact, the FDA is warned against the use of hydroxychloroquine's use for COVID-19 due to a risk of serious heart problems. President Xi Jinping of China offered to provide $2 billion in the fight against the pandemic to the World Health Organization on a day when Trump tried to shift blame for his own response. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar delivered a confrontational speech claiming the World Health Organization's handling of the outbreak in China led to unnecessary deaths. Attorney General William Barr dismissed Trump's attempt to rebrand the Russia investigation as a criminal plot engineered by President Obama. Barr said, quote, I don't expect Mr. Durham's work will lead to a criminal investigation of either Obama or Biden. Trump reacted predictably, saying that were he in charge, he would investigate everyone. A $500 billion Treasury Department fund created by the CARES Act to help prop up large segments of the economy has dispersed almost no money. Cell phone data suggests that demonstrators at anti-lockdown protests may have spread the coronavirus. Devices present at protests in Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Colorado, and Florida were tracked using opt-in apps, showing the protesters frequently traveled hundreds of miles. And Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin presented Trump with a debit card with his name on it, adding, quote, now there's no money for you on it, this is a blank debit card. 
Trump appeared awed by the card and then asked Mnuchin, quote, do I sign the letter again? A reference to the politically tinged letter Trump sent to a company, direct cash payments to Americans. Mnuchin patted Trump on the shoulder and said, the next time you send money, you'll get to send another letter. Day 1216, May 19th. Trump called the high number of U.S. COVID-19 cases a badge of honor because it means the U.S. is testing more people. Really, it's a badge of honor. It's a great tribute to the testing and all of the work that a lot of professionals have done. Trump said he would cut off funding to the World Health Organization and revoke U.S. membership. Trump sent a letter to the WHO Director General claiming the organization, quote, ignored credible reports of the virus and repeatedly made claims about the coronavirus that were either grossly inaccurate or misleading. WHO has denied those claims. Trump also did not specify what reforms he was seeking in the organization, tweeting it was, quote, self-explanatory. Leaders in Europe and Asia asked Trump in a joint statement to, quote, stop the blame game. In testimony before Congress, Steve Mnuchin warned the economy may never fully recover if states extend their shutdowns for months, claiming there is a risk of permanent damage. Fed Chair Jerome Powell, however, warned that the economy needed a more forceful policy response from Congress. Both men faced pointed questions from lawmakers, including one Democratic senator who alleged workers lied for being put at risk by the Trump push to quickly reopen. A leaked memo from the Pentagon warned of the real possibility of a resurgence of the coronavirus and said an effective vaccine will not be ready until at least summer of 2021. Trump claimed that a VA study of hydroxychloroquine was an enemy study. That was a false study done where they gave it to very sick people, extremely sick people that were ready to die. It was given, uh, obviously, not friends of the administration. They were old, almost dead. It was a Trump enemy statement. Trump went on to falsely claim that hydroxychloroquine does not have negative side effects. What has been determined is that it doesn't harm you. When a reporter mentioned the FDA's black box warning on the drug, Trump said, that's not what I was told. Meanwhile, White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany said she didn't, quote, know the exact rationale behind Trump's decision to take the drug. The Trump administration signed a $354 million contract to create the nation's first strategic stockpile of generic medicines. Georgia Republican Governor Brian Kemp, under heavy fire for his premature reopening of the state, doctored statistics on a graph that purported to show a dramatic, steady decline in cases, deaths, and hospitalizations. The problem was the dates have been resorted. April 30th was followed by May 4th. May 5th was followed by May 2nd, which was followed by May 7th, which in turn was followed by April 26th. Day 1217, May 20th. New models show if the United States had begun imposing social distancing measures two weeks earlier in March, the vast majority of the nation's deaths, about 83%, would have been avoided. The new models show the grim march of the virus in the USA and how time was lost. Trump claimed falsely that the states of Michigan and Nevada engaged in voter fraud and threatened to withhold federal funds to those states if they expanded their vote-by-mail efforts, which he also falsely called illegal. Trump and his Republican allies have launched a series of false attacks in an attempt to demonize mail voting as fraught with fraud and claiming it gives an advantage to Democrats. States, in fact, are moving to vote by mail due to the pandemic. Trump was apparently set off by an announcement by Michigan's Secretary of State she was going to send absentee ballot applications to every voter. Senate Republicans are attempting to resurrect disproven claims that Joe Biden's son helped a Ukrainian energy firm curry favor with the Obama administration. The Senate voted along party lines to issue a rare subpoena for documents as part of an organized plan by the Trump administration to weaponize the hearings. Among those to be called for testimony are James Comey, James Clapper, Loretta Lynch, 
and Dennis McDonough, Obama's former chief of staff. Trump has prodded senators in recent weeks to, quote, get tough on investigations of his perceived enemies. He warned them privately in a lunch on Capitol Hill that if Republicans did not stick together, quote, vicious Democrats would wipe them out in November. Trump tweeted, time is running out, get tough and move quickly, or it will be too late. The Dems are vicious but got caught. They must pay a big price for what they have done to our country. The CDC quietly released the reopening guidance that the White House had shelved. The 60-page document provides detailed guidance for schools, businesses, transit systems, and other industries to safely reopen. CDC officials said, quote, we've been muzzled. If we could have acted earlier on what we knew and recommended, we would have saved lives and money. In a related story, Republican political operatives have been recruiting extremely pro-Trump doctors to go on TV and make the case for reopening the economy as quickly as possible. The Trump campaign confirmed the effort, which was to recruit doctors to support reopening the economy without waiting to meet any safety benchmarks. Day 1,218, May 21st. 2.4 million more U.S. workers filed claims last week, even as curbs on businesses began lifting. The nine-week total is now in excess of 38 million Americans. The official unemployment rate for May is now 21%. The actual rate is probably higher as one in two Americans report that a member of their household is now out of work. Several southern states are seeing a rise in new coronavirus cases, moving them further away from an important target for safely reopening. Some of the states whose new cases are increasing, including Arkansas, North Carolina, and North Dakota, also fare poorly in other metrics as well. Trump, however, ordered his campaign to find a way to get him back on the road and restart his rallies. Trump is checking on regional reopenings, where he hopes to stage the large rallies he craves. The Supreme Court blocked Congress from seeing secret grand jury material from Robert Mueller's investigation into the Trump administration and Russian influence in the 2016 election. The court agreed with a request from the Justice Department to put a hold on a lower court decision. It is likely that information now will remain shielded through 2020. Trump has ordered the end to deployments for more than 40,000 National Guard members currently helping states with testing and tracing programs on June 24th. That is one day before thousands of National Guard members would become eligible for key federal benefits, including early retirement and education under the post-9-11 GI Bill. The pro-Trump super PAC America First Action spent more than half its operating costs on legal fees last month, spending $1.3 million, an unusually high amount. The FBI is investigating the super PAC and donations made by Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, two associates of Rudy Giuliani, were accused of conspiracy and making false statements. Both men have pleaded not guilty. Trump's approval rating continues to fall. It is now at 40 percent. Sixty percent of working Americans fear exposure to coronavirus and then fear they would infect members of their households by taking it home. Seventy-five percent of Americans are now certain that climate change is happening. It is the highest level ever of acceptance recorded by that survey. These are the Trump Diaries. Studio A has been closed due to the pandemic. Please enjoy this brand new track from the Search and Research Trio. This is Black Mountain Rainbow. It was engineered by Corey Albritton in Studio C.
This is a WCYFM. No, you you get so far removed. You know these 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 cushy epidemiology jobs. You know I I'm I'm I don't want to I don't want to speculate, but I'm going to speculate here. I, as far as I see it, they're sitting with a dartboard that says, uh, you know, one side it says ten thousand dead, other side it says, uh, oh, the quarantine goes on for another two months. Another one says, uh, you know, uh, shoot again, and they're just throwing darts, just throwing darts at it, and 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 that's what they're basing it off of. You know, once again i haven't seen right. the formula i haven't seen the models so as far as i'm concerned they're making them up well if, if listener if you know an epidemiologist demand to see the work all right demand to see their work not and, and not and, and don't get yeah. don't get brushed off don't don't let them say oh you know it's kind of complicated oh it won't really make a lot of sense to you. You get in their face. You step within the social distancing guidelines because that's the only way to intimidate someone. And then you you say, hey, show me the math. Write it down. I've got a whiteboard. I've got markers. Put it on the board. Let's see it. I want to evaluate it. And you know what? They won't. That's the thing. They won't. They won't go through it. They won't go through it with you. They won't they show won't. you the data sets. They won't because they, they are. They're frightened. They're frightened. They're cowards, and they're not willing to Grendel transform the curve. That's the fact of the matter. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. Yeah. That's where we're at with Malachi Twenty One. I know. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing about all these. That's the thing about all of these so-called quote-unquote abstract mathematicians. Is you know you get all these experim these experimentalists or whatever in here, the epidemiologists and and biologists and doctors. They're changing their their minds all the time. They're changing their minds all the time. They try something, it doesn't work. They try something else. Well, well that's the thing those, about a- those those abstract mathematicians. They they have a book. They write everything down. They wrote every single thing down. All of their equations are in some two thousand page page paper describing the, this 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 mathematics, and it's all there. And you know what? All of that's true. It's all true. We know it to be true because nobody has said it's not true. Ma- nobody math, would even – Math is true. Math exists and it's real and, and that, that's, <laughs> that's the fact of the matter. Math is exists, yeah. OK? It's and there. It's, and it's true. It's true and it's written down. Mathematicians, they wouldn't waste their time. They're a very – they're <laughs> – Excuse me. Mathematicians, they won't waste their time. They're not a people to waste their time. They, they're dedicated to the cold, hard facts, and that's why they're mathematicians. That's why they're interested in the field in the first place, because math is serious, and no one does it for fun. It is the least fun thing on the face of the earth, so why, why would these mathematicians waste their time doing something that isn't absolutely 100% true and never changes? Broadcast every Saturday, 8 to 9 p.m. The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen.